Well, um, uh, good evening and thank you, you all for coming along to tonight's lecture. Uh, this event is the fourth uh, of six in the LSE Law Department's public lecture program for this academic year. Our objective this year was to have speakers who hold positions requiring them to perform functions which are as much political as legal. And to this end, we've invited a number of senior legal and political figures to talk about their roles, the institutions they serve, and their understanding of the relationship between law and politics. It's difficult to imagine anyone better suited to reflecting on these themes than tonight's speaker, Jack Straw, and we're absolutely delighted that he accepted our invitation to speak in this series. Jack Straw has been a Member of Parliament since 1979. Since 1997, he has served as Home Secretary, Foreign Secretary, and as Leader of the House of Commons. He is currently our Lord Chancellor and Secretary of State for Justice. And it is on his role as Lord Chancellor that he will be speaking tonight. The title of his talk is Constitutional Continuity, the Role of Lord Chancellor in a Modern Democracy. Modern democracy. Ladies and gentlemen, Jack Straw. Thanks very much indeed, and thank you all for coming. Uh, it's always a delight to be back uh, in the LSE. Um, uh, as I have written in the uh, visitor's book, uh, it's, it's such a placid place uh, compared with uh, how it used to be. Uh, the thing you might be left out of the, uh, the brief uh, CV was I was president of the NUS uh, in the late 60s and early 70s, and, and the NUS was constantly threatening to disaffiliate, so I used to come down here into the old theatre uh, and get shouted at, uh, for either because we were too left-wing or too right-wing, or anyway, we didn't have the line right. Uh, but this was a, I, I, I think it, the LSE stayed uh, within the NUS uh, throughout the two years, but it was a turbulent uh, period. Anyway, it's a great pleasure uh, to be back here. It's an extraordinary. Uh, I sometimes think what happens to old presidents of the National Union of Students. Uh, some of them end up as Lord Chancellor. Um, I want to offer um, some observations about the the role of uh, Lord Chancellor, and the complexity of the relationship between politics and the law is really no more uh, clearly demonstrated than in the person of uh, the Lord Chancellor. And I want, therefore, to offer some observations about the nature of the role, its history, uh, and its future. The 2005 Constitutional Reform Act broke up the historic holy trinity of roles of the old Lord Chancellor, uh, who was the most senior judge, head of the judiciary, the Speaker of the House of Lords, and also a senior member of the Cabinet. Um, and uh, that ended with the Constitutional Reform Act, uh, where the House of Lords was provided with a separate uh, independent Speaker. The Lord Chief Justice quite properly became head of the judiciary, and the Lord Chancellor's role was that as a member of the Cabinet, responsible, but at arm's length, for the judiciary and many other uh, functions related to that. And alongside that change, there's been the formation of the Ministry of Justice, which from June 2007 created one of the largest departments of state. And the other change that's happened uh, is there is now a commoner, a member of parliament, uh, as the Lord Chancellor. The last time there was a commoner as the Lord Chancellor was in the uh, reign of Elizabeth I, uh, and uh, she was on the throne. The Armada had been uh, defeated, and a young actor and playwright called William Shakespeare uh, was just beginning to make a name for himself across the London stage. 
And the then Lord Chancellor, a man called uh, Sir Christopher Hatton, who held office from 1587 to 1591, is better remembered, I'm told, for his good looks and for his dancing uh, than his place in the pantheon of Lord Chancellors. Uh, but what the gap demonstrates is the astonishing continuity of this role. His previous, last predecessor as a sitting MP uh, was Thomas More, uh, and it's always worth me reflecting on what happened to him uh, when he, uh, he uh, got into difficulties uh, with his head of government uh, as well as his head of state. Lord Chancellor has always occupied a position which is unique to this con country's constitutional arrangements. Indeed, it may only be due to the flexibility of our largely unwritten constitution that such an anomaly was allowed to develop, indeed to thrive. And if you think about it, if, if we'd set in uh, to other countries uh, a uh, human rights uh, watch uh, sort of monitoring on some other countries and said, this is terrible. You know, there's this guy called the Lord Chancellor. He's head of the judiciary. He sits in court. He's speaker of the apparently independent parliament. And uh, he sits uh, in, the, in the cabinet. Where is uh, the separation of powers? Uh, and we probably would have all subscribed to a condemnation uh, of uh, the person and the, and the, and the country uh, that led to the office. However, it did work, and it worked uh, in a remarkable way. But it couldn't work forever. The, the shelves in the Ministry of Justice library sag with the combined weight of Campbell's ten-volume opus on the lives of Lord Chancellors. Uh, I'm not going to do a disservice to that extraordinary work by trying to summarise it in five minutes this evening. But what it shows is how the relationship between the political, legal, and judicial roles has constantly evolved. From the high watermark of the all-powerful Cardinal Wolsey, who certainly had no sense of a separation of powers, uh, to the Victorian Lord Chancellors, well described in Dickens' Bleak House, who were preeminent as lawyers and uh, respected and influential judges, depending on who they were, but anyway, that was their principal job, but who were politically less significant carrying little weight either in cabinet or parliament. Um, and whether as judge or politician, Lord Chancellors throughout the ages have shared what the late Lord Cook of Thorndon described when the House of Lords was debating its future in 2004, or the future of the office in 2004, as a special legacy. For the Lord Chancellor has duties which go beyond those of Secretaries of State, further responsibilities other than to cabinet, and a concern which necessarily goes beyond departmental interest. That's a duty to serve the interests of justice, to protect the rule of law, and the independence of the judiciary. And that will hopefully be a timeless truth about the position. But what was apparent by the end of the 20th century was that the, an unreconstructed office of the Lord Chancellor would not be acceptable in the 21st. And so what we then saw was a further and major significant period of change. And when the next volume of the lives of Lord Chancellors had written, my three immediate predecessors, Lord Mackay, Lord Irvin, and Lord Faulkner, will be recorded as three of the great reformers. James Mackay, who was Lord Chancellor between 1987 and 1997, um, was himself a former Lord Advocate of Scotland. He transformed the civil courts through the Wolf reforms. Derry Irvin, who sat as the first Lord Chancellor in the Labour administration from 1997 to 2002 was a very different type of Lord Chancellor, a more political animal than his predecessor, although he did sit uh, as a judge in the Law Lords, 
Um, and as well as being an estimable figure in the law, Derry was active and influential as a cabinet minister. He chaired a number of key cabinet uh, uh, committees, responsible for a broad programme of constitutional renewal and furthering reform of the legal profession. And then the last, as it were, old-style Lord Chancellor and the first of the new styles was Charlie Faulkner. Um, the last to sit on the Woolsack as Speaker, and whilst he declined to sit as a judge, he remained as head of the judiciary for two years until the Constitutional Reform Act, which he promoted and worked tirelessly to achieve, and that, as I've already said, passed responsibility for the judiciary to the Lord Chief Justice. Now, there were really serious negotiations around the Constitution, at the time of the Constitutional Reform Act, uh, about the position of the Lord Chancellor, because the original proposal was that uh, the Lord, as, a, as the position uh, of Lord Chancellor as head of the judiciary was being ch changed, the position itself as Lord Chancellor should be abolished. Uh, but even with a huge majority, uh, which we had at the time, that turned out, and let me say, I had an alibi. I was abroad whilst all this was, was going through as Foreign Secretary. Uh, but the, uh, even despite the majority, it became impossible to abolish the position of Lord Chancellor. It was too complicated for a start, too embedded in all sorts of legislation. It would have taken months and months trawling through uh, uh, databases of, of statutes and statutory instruments and Lord knows what to try and sort out who was going to take the, 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 the residual powers of the, of the Lord Chancellor. But also it led to real anxiety amongst the judiciary and in the House of Lords at a political level uh, that the, uh, if, if you ended the, the post uh, that the judiciary would be subject to unacceptable, uh, an unacceptable level of uh, political pressure. So in the end uh, it was conceded that the position uh, should change. Uh, and great credit to Charlie Faulkner for that. But alongside that, uh, Charlie was also the man who fought tirelessly to bring about a new Ministry of Justice, balancing uh, the enforcement duties of the Home Office. And he did that notwithstanding the certainty, which he knew, that once the Ministry of Justice had been established, uh, it would be impossible for the head of that department as Secretary of State and Lord Chancellor to remain uh, in the upper house. Now, much of the analysis of the role of Lord Chancellor has centred around his, his historic constitutional position at the intersection of three branches of the state. Far less has been said about the responsibilities of the position as government minister and head of a major, major spending department, and it's to this I want to turn next. In part, this is because the responsibilities are relatively new. This came as a surprise to me. In 1939, the Lord Chancellor's Department comprised 13 people in total. That was it. Even 30 years later, other than administrative staff, all the officials were lawyers. And 30 years after that, in 1999, it was still prescribed by law that the permanent secretary, the civil service head uh, of the uh, Lord Chancellor's Department, had to be a barrister or solicitor of at least 10 years standing, and it was still a, really a remarkably small legal secretariat. Now in 2009, uh, the Ministry of Justice employs 80,000 staff, has a budget of 10 billion, and the permanent secretary is an economist from the Treasury. Um, now there's been a steady accrual of administrative functions since the 71 Courts Act gave the Lord Chancellor responsibility 
the administration of the High Court, the Crown and County Courts. But the effect of the creation of the Ministry of Justice is far greater both in significance and magnitude with the addition of prisons and probation, the management of a vastly increased budget and broader responsibilities for the justice system as a whole, including a very wide range of constitutional measures, not least the Freedom of Information Act, data protection, uh, and above all, the Human Rights Act. And such, as I've said, is the, the scope and mandate of this department, so large the budget and so political the policy areas, that its head had to be uh, an MP, subject to the greater degree of scrutiny and accountability which goes with that. Now, when I was appointed to the office, there was a degree of disquiet that the, at the prospect of a street politician fulfilling such a vital constitutional function. The fear, uh, which I hope uh, has been unrealised, was that the pressures associated with being a member of parliament, of representing a constituency, of operating in the full glare of public and media scrutiny, could make the Lord Chancellor more prone to act out of populism than out of principle, or more prone to rob Peter to pay Paul by borrowing, for example, from the legal aid or courts budget to fund an increase in prison places, and to be less inclined to act as uh, what Lord Cook described in those debates in 2004 as the guarantor or watchdog of legality at the heart of the Constitution. Now, I've tried to reassure uh, everybody, but particularly the judiciary and the House of Lords, that though I sit in a different place from my predecessors, that does not mean that I've abandoned the same enduring values and principles uh, which are necessary to follow in this job, nor do I take my responsibilities any less seriously. I had to go to, I didn't know this when I took this, I accepted uh, the call from the, the Prime Minister, I don't think he knew it either, uh, uh, but um, along with going to the palace uh, and swearing an oath to Her Majesty, which, which goes with uh, any change of, of, of cabinet position. Um, what I didn't know was that I'd been required to come down to the Royal Courts of Justice uh, and, and in public swear not one but three oaths uh, in front of, administered in front of the Lord uh, Chief Justice um, in which I declared my... Uh, I, I swore oaths to protect the independence uh, of the judiciary, uh, and, and including uh, an oath to ensure uh, an adequacy of resources uh, for them. And no other, no other uh, query whether I've kept that, but I think I have, uh, and no other uh, minister has to swear such oaths. And although you can always dismiss ritual like this as, as of trivial, uh, 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 as trivia, I don't, and no one should, because the very fact you have to make, uh, take these oaths publicly in that forum does mean that, that uh, you have to think differently. And also, when you're arguing with the Treasury, uh, it does give you something to say back to them <laughs> if they are saying uh, that uh, they want some money or they're not going to give you uh, what you've sought. But it doesn't mean uh, that you can dismiss uh, questions of value for money. And this does neatly bring me to a critical element of my duty to provide to ensure that there, there is access uh, to justice, but also value for money, to one of the biggest single areas for which I'm responsible, the provision of legal aid. Um, legal aid provision will be 60 years old uh, this year, in July. Uh, it's one of the proud achievements of that ref great reforming post-war Labour government, which also 
established the national insurance system and the national health service and town and country planning and much else uh, besides established legal aid um, and I'm very proud uh, that uh, it has not only was not only established uh, but it has developed in the way it is but legal aid inevitably because it has developed to the extent that it has has been the subject become the subject of focus for two linked reasons first there is a pressure on all public services to deliver better for less both due to the prevailing economic economic downturn and the fiscal squeeze but also more widely because we owe responsibilities to the the taxpayer in any event and there may be people who say well public services should not be expected to become efficient i don't take that view because i try i try and avoid talking about the government giving this service or that service money it's quite easy to slip into that language after you've been a minister uh, for a while uh, because you become a bit proprietorial uh, about uh, the government and it's 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 a really it's a, it's a it's a bad place to be i don't have any any money other than the money which uh, has been required by law that taxpayer pay into the exchequer so we're trustees for that money and we have a profound responsibility to ensure that it's spent properly the other thing I'd say, and this, this is truth at any time, uh, but it's truth particularly now, um, that uh, if in, the, in the private sector, if you take manufacturing, any process area of, 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 of process industry, there's been a constant drive to improve efficiency and effectiveness. Until the downturn, uh, our car industry in 2008 was producing as many vehicles as it did at, at, at the peak of the 1970s British car industry in this country, but with a quarter of the people, because it became much more efficient. And it wasn't a quarter of the people doing the design, working out what the product should be, it was a quarter of the people doing the process. Law is a process business, um, and it, it's complicated, and a huge amount of time uh, in, in legal, we call it legal processes, but it's, it's spent on process rather than that the finality of the outcome. <coughs> Uh, and there's no reason there to why we shouldn't constantly strive to make the process simpler and more effective, rather than, as I sometimes feel, uh, the reverse. Parliament plays its own role in making it more complicated. But the second reason I say the first is we've got a duty to deliver value for money at all stages. The second is a particular duty in respect of legal aid because of the way the overall legal aid budget has grown and also the parallel growth of the number of lawyers and law firms dependent on the state and the taxpayer. In England and Wales, we have the best funded legal aid system in the world. We spend £38 per head of population on legal aid. And that amounts to uh, a total budget for England and Wales of more than £2,000 billion, £2 billion a year. And that's the same amount, to put it into perspective, as we spend on the prison system in England and Wales, housing 83,000 prisoners, keeping them not only safe, not necessarily comfortable, but, 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 but safe, properly fed, uh, and relatively healthy, healthy. Uh, but also paying 48,000 staff to do that. So that's, uh, t that's two billion, and the legal aid system is also two billion. And I want to dwell on these, uh, for a moment on these figures, so we, we, we put them in uh, to a perspe a another perspective. Each justice system, we know, has its own vagaries, but the scale of the difference in legal aid spending between here and abroad is compelling. 
for start, first of all, within the United Kingdom. So it's £38 a head in England and Wales, it's £31 a head in Scotland and in Northern Ireland. In New Zealand and Canada, so-called old Commonwealth countries, which have justice systems not dissimilar to our own, they spend around £10 a head on legal aid. In European jurisdictions, albeit that they tend to spend more on their court system, so more uh, functions are undertaken by the judiciary than in our system, so the comparison is not a direct one, but it's still worth having a, a, take, a take on this. In Germany, it's £4 a head, France £3, Sweden £1. And the Irish Republic, which is basically a common law system, it's £7 a head. And the rate of growth in, in the legal aid budget has also been extraordinary, up from £536 million at today's prices in 1982 to £2 billion uh, a day. Uh, so it's, it's grown by a factor of four, quadrupled in size in real terms. And that amounts to uh, a real terms increase of 5.7% uh, per year. Now, through our recent reforms, we've secured greater control over legal aid expenditure. But prior to that, and it's been very recent, legal aid grew faster than any other comparable public service over the previous quarter of a century. Faster than social services, faster than education, faster than health. And along with that growth in spend, unsurprisingly, so too has the number of practicing lawyers increased at a, an extraordinary rate, more than doubling over the past 20 years. But the amount of work, however, has not doubled. When I was called to the bar in the early 70s, there were in practice just over 2,500 barristers and 32,000 solicitors. Now, the figure for uh, members of the, of the bar uh, has, has risen, practicing members of the bar, sixfold to 15,000. And for solicitors, uh, it's more than trebled to 108,000. And in the UK, we have a population of 61 million, which means that there's roughly one lawyer for every 400 people. I went to India recently. I know India very well. Uh, anybody in India will tell you it's a highly litigious uh, country, and it's uh, one of its, 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 its many uh, charms. Uh, uh, and it's just, it is very litigious. But in India, they have uh, one lawyer for every 1,500 people. Uh, we have one lawyer for every 400. Uh, meanwhile, 50% of legal aid in the Crown Court is consumed by just 1% of cases. And I suggest that unless we get a better balance in legal aid than to borrow a formulation from President Carter uh, in a, a, a speech which he made in 1978. Uh, unless we get a better, better balance, we're in danger of becoming over-lawyered and underrepresented. Now, I hope everyone, taxpayer and lawyer alike, will accept that the growth of spending on legal aid seen in the early part of this decade and the, and the <coughs> decades before is no longer sustainable. Hence our moves to extend fixed and graduated fees as a precursor to best value tendering. For law firms to survive, they'll have to look to how they are structured and how they operate. The introduction of the Legal Services Act has meant that new opportunities are there for firms who are able to adapt to the changing demands of the new legal marketplace. Currently, 80% of all legal aid work is carried out by firms with fewer than four partners. Nearly a third is undertaken by sole practitioners. But no firm, large or small, will be able to stand in the face of the innovation which new business models will be able to bring. And this may well mean that lone practitioners will have to join together or smaller firms will grow larger. Now, often I hear concerns expressed that having fewer individual practices 
will lead to a reduction in people's access to justice. But here I think access is at risk of being confused with physical proximity. And people have grown used to a far wider range of telephone and internet-based services and demand more rapid and, and convenient access to services, but not necessarily an office on the street corner. And one of the things we've been trying to do uh, with very imaginative work in funding what are called clacks and clans, community legal advice networks and community legal advice centres, is to bring a much wider range of experts in assistance, legal and quasi-legal, together in one place uh, in uh, towns and cities. And I, I looked at one in, in Portsmouth uh, the other day. Uh, so that uh, when somebody, a citizen, needs help, they don't then have to go from one practitioner to another, uh, but can find it all in the same place. And a further question individual practices need to consider is whether or not all of the functions currently carried out by qualified solicitors need always to be undertaken by them, nor necessarily charged at their rates. In the health service, some hospitals have reduced waiting lists by having physiotherapists run outpatient clinics for orthopaedic surgeons. The patient's still seen by someone professionally qualified, but, uh, and they are able to make judgments uh, when genuine surgical help is needed. There's therefore more rapid treatment for both routine and urgent cases with each receiving a proportionate intervention. Now, as paralegals take on more responsibility, as the legal executive profession develops, there should be scope to do more, more quickly, and at lower costs without standards falling. And there's scope to achieve the same thing by working in larger units with better managerial and clerical support. And here I want to draw a parallel. Parallels are always dangerous, but we argue by analogy. It's the whole basis of the development of common law, so I'm going to use uh, an analogy uh, uh, without apology. Let's think about um, development of optician services. When these were, uh, there was a, basically optician services used to be a cartel, privately run uh, cartel. They were deregulated in the 1980s. And I remember being one of a number of people protesting uh, about this deregulation. Um, but if we think about it, uh, it has led to beneficial change. I'm not suggesting we deregulate the legal profession, by the way, uh, but I am, I'm suggesting that what has happened in terms of the market for optician services is interesting and of relevance. Because what, was hap what, what happened before then was that there were lone high street opticians with expensive overheads and limited bargaining power when it came to supply of frames and lenses. Now optician services tend to be provided by larger chains which benefit from substantial economies of, chain, of scale, which in turn are passed on to the customer. We're still seen by highly skilled and qualified opticians, but the customer benefits from the savings which accrue from more efficient procurement, better systems uh, and processes, including, for example, using salespeople rather than qualified opticians to help choose our frames. The important factor here is that there's been no decline in the quality of the clinical services, and someone who's had to wear spectacles or currently contact lenses since the age of four. Uh, I can uh, confirm that. Um, but the opticians we see just as well qualified as they ever were. But they see more people more quickly because they don't necessarily spend their time having to run the whole business as well. And there's been a marked increase in the level of customer service overall. And still, uh, niche opportunities for single-handed practitioners. Now, I appreciate that these are obviously very different professions. But I see no reason why a similar principle should not apply to how legal services reliant on public funding are structured. 
And I suggest that the number of law firms is not necessarily a proxy for access to or quality of justice. And it's not merely, merely a, purely a question for publicly funded firms. I hope that the advent of the alternative business structures for which the law is now uh, in force will generate similar innovations, benefiting those above the legal aid limit who still do not find it easy to pay for the advice which they need, uh, uh, when, when, uh, which they need, uh, which they may need. Legal aid is one of the largest public services delivered by the private sector. But there is an issue as to whether the legal services industry which provides it has been through the same process of reform or subject to the same market pressures as other industries. Over a generation, the delivery of public services in many areas has been transformed from bin services to schools to hospitals, indeed also universities as well. The twin approach from both conservative and labor administrations administrations has been to set measures and standards sub subject to independent and proportionate regulation, but also to challenge efficiency in the public sector by allowing competition from the private sector. In large part, of course, standards flow from the profession itself, but totally freestanding professional self-regulation no longer carries public cred credibility, and it couldn't last. And for that reason, we set up the Legal Services Board with its remit of improving access to justice, ensuring highest quality regulatory standards, improving redress for people when things go wrong, and above all, guaranteeing proper independence in regulation. But there's a special problem, and here the parallel with other public services breaks down, where the public service has always been provided through private contractors, especially where those private contractors are small firms or single operators. Why is there a particular problem in managing general uh, practitioners or managing dentists or, uh, or, or solicitors dependent on legal aid? All of them are, ones I'm talking about, wholly funded by the state. It's delivered through very small businesses. Um, and at best, they can offer fantastic care and value for money. But monitoring and maintaining levels of service is inherently difficult. At worst, they can display a high level of ingenuity in how they make use of the system of payment or go in for outright exploitation. So a, the publicly funded but privately delivered legal profession needs to take an ever closer look at itself, consider the service which it's providing, and think about how it's viewed in the eyes of the public. Now at the moment, a very public and highly charged debate is taking place about the size of city salaries. And whilst I'm not drawing any direct equivalence in salaries or justification between public paid lawyers and bankers, there does need to be a similar debate about how much lawyers should be able to draw from the taxpayer. Many legal aid lawyers, like many staff in high street banks, have earnings comparable to people in the public sector itself. The work which they do is incredibly important, and they do it out of the best traditions of both the law and public service. But for others, particularly at the top of their profession, and also sometimes in the middle ranks, the picture is very different. And there's an expectation that they should receive rewards comparable to those in private practice. Two years ago, Geoffrey Voss, QC, then chairman of the bar, said that the time had run out for the one pound a million a year barrister. But the forthcoming announcement of the highest paid legal aid barristers, including those who are paid more than a million a year, 
in the country will provoke just this source of debate and will lead some to wonder how long it takes for change to arrive. And there's certainly nothing ordained by the Almighty which says that of those paid for by the public purse, lawyers should always be higher than any other profession. And lawyers and law firms who are dependent on state funding are emphasized dependent as there are many whose existence relies exclusively on the public purse, would I suggest be wise to reconsider expectations of earnings. Those in exclusively private practice will in any event be doing so, as market disciplines and the impact of the economic slowdown hit home. Successful legal businesses may be a byproduct of the law, and the public will be increasingly better served as law firms become more businesslike in responding to consumer needs but successful legal business is not a purpose of the law. Law is an honourable profession. It's an importance, an appeal, and an attraction which goes far beyond the financial. There's a commitment to uphold the rule of law and to improve access to justice, which are amongst the most admirable qualities of the profession and a code of professional ethics which binds the legal system together. These are things which need to be cherished uh, and uh, preserved. But alongside that, uh, what we have to do is to ensure that there are wider structural changes uh, in the profession, uh, better uh, and independent regulation, um, so that uh, we get to a, a, a more stable state in the amount of money which uh, the, the public give uh, to, to lawyers to do, provide a service for them. My duty is to both justice and to the taxpayer, and far from both ends being mutually exclusive, it has, they have a and have to be mutually supportive. Let me just say this in conclusion. Lord Chancellors have often been the stewards of change to the Constitution, and so too the operation of the courts and the legal profession. But as the first of a new breed of Lord Chancellor, I have a different set of immediate responsibilities than many of my predecessors. That includes this even greater duty to provide value for the taxpaying public uh, and the legal services uh, which uh, uh, taxpaying public, including uh, legal services or, for example, prison places. In some respects, I'm a Secretary of State and Cabinet Minister like any other, but in other regards, my office, as I've explained, is unique. Lord Irvin, uh, my predecessor but one, captured this essence when he said, Lord Chancellors come to the office imbued with the values which underpin our democracy, the rule of law, freedom under the law, the independence of the judiciary from any executive interference, any Lord Chancellor, these values would be armour against executive mindedness or executive pressure. In the actions I take and the decisions I make, I'm mindful of the special legacy of which I'm part, well aware of the vital constitutional position of the Lord Chancellor and of my complementary duty to uphold the law and act in the interests of justice. A modern Lord Chancellor therefore needs to combine the increased demands which come with greater executive responsibilities with the historic function of the role. Yet it's critical to the health of a modern democracy that reverence and respect for history and traditions should not stand in the way of progress. And this applies every bit as much to the legal professions as it does to officers of the law. This balance is something with which Lord Chancellors throughout the ages have had to grapple, from Wolsey to Hatton to Haldane, Irvine and Falconer. And it's something which will long continue to characterise the office uh, and those who hold it. 
Thank you very much indeed. Uh, Chancellor has very kindly indicated that he's um, got a short time to answer questions if anyone would, would like to ask a question. Um, so please indicate yourself as clearly as possible. Um, I'm not sure if we've got microphones. We, we, uh, we do. So if you wait for the microphones to be, be passed to you. Um, so the, the gentleman in, in black with his, his hand up there. Uh, pleasure to see you for the first time in a chance to speak to a law chancellor. A law chancellor in the UK before used to uh, choose people like friends, especially good friends, as judges. Uh, and that has changed uh, now. Would you like to be in that position or not <laughs> to choose good friends? Okay. Should we, we take a, a two or three? One go. I'll, thank you. Um, yes, there are, there are a couple here at the, the front, the gentleman in the, the grey sweater. Uh, thank you. Um, a couple of quick points arising from the Constitutional Reform Act. First of all, now that the Lord Chancellor is no longer um, head of the judiciary under the Crown, does that, in your experience, make the job easier or more difficult? And secondly, on the question of judicial appointments, now you've got the JAC up and running, do you, as Lord Chancellor, still have any role whatsoever when it comes to judicial appointments? Yep. Thanks very much. Good. Do, we Do you want to take the gentleman yeah, in the pink sweater? Yeah, in the pink sweater as well. Lord Chancellor, um, what would you say the main benefits of having a Supreme Court um, in our system will bring? Yeah. Right. Um, would I like to, to uh, appoint my friends as judges? Ah. Well... <laughs> Some, some days may be, um, uh, but I'm basically no, is the answer. And, and the, the, although the, the system formally didn't change until 2005, um, Lord Chancellors had, had moved away uh, from a system where it was a matter of, of, of personal uh, choice, uh, not to say eccentricity about who got these jobs. And so there was quite a formal system under, 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 underneath the... the the rule that it was the Lord Chancellor who, who made the recommendation to the Queen. If I may combine my answer to you, sir, with uh, the answer to the second part of your uh, question, what function do I currently ha have under the judicial appointments uh, system? Distinguish here between um, all the judicial levels, district judge, recorder, uh, circuit judge, high, high court judge, and Court of Appeal from the, the very senior posts, this, those in the Law Lord Supreme Court, Lord Chief Justice, heads of divisions, which put to one side for a second. Um, the, the, the role I have there is, is in, in setting the numbers in, 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 and in setting what are called non-statutory criteria uh, for these uh, posts. Um, and, I mean, technically I can send them back uh, and um, if, if I don't like a particular didn't like a particular slate that was recommended to me, I could send them, send them, ask them to, for them to be uh, reconsidered. I mean, in, in practice, I, d I don't. In practice, I don't do. I haven't done that. I may could come a time. Um, I I don't know the people who are being selected. The JAC is there to, and is doing a proper job with, uh, and no one's criticised uh, the 
uh, quality of those going onto the bench uh, through the JSE process, it's self-evidently a much fairer system. And one of the consequences of having a much bigger legal profession is that the old days when the Lord Chancellor was a fair bet that he would know the people being appointed uh, is no longer the case. In respect to the very senior posts, without going to what's quite a complicated procedure, um, I have a much more active role. And as Lord Phillips, the, now the head of the, the senior law lord, will be the president of the Supreme Court, said in a lecture that happened to gave, gave it in Kenya, is that the, at that position, at that level, where there is an intersection between the, those who are the head of the judiciary and different divisions of it, and the executive, you have to have, you don't have people who are toadies to the government, but you have to have uh, people have, who, one of whose qualities that they understand how government works. Uh, and I think that's uh, essential. Um, do I miss being head of the judiciary? Well, I never was head of the judiciary. I, 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 I don't, but I think it'd be quite improper for me to be head of the judiciary. Uh, I think where we have arrived at is a very sensible division of functions, which re reflects the separation of powers. I have a great deal to do uh, with the Lord Chief Justice uh, and his senior colleagues. It's a confidential uh, relationship. Uh, and I obviously have a responsibility to provide them with enough money, and there's sometimes a, an active debate there. In a sense, we share responsibility of the administration of the courts, but I think, I think it is far better. It is a, a, an independent arm of the state. Uh, and it's, and you know, one, one of the most important jobs of the judiciary is to hold the executive, i.e. ministers like me, to account on behalf of the citizens. Um, so it's really important they are at arm's length. What are the benefits of the Supreme Court? I mean, it, the, the, the powers of the Supreme Court won't be that any different from those of the law lords. But it is actually rather eccentric to have your Supreme Court embedded into your one of your two chambers of, of your parliament. When I went to, to pay a call on the uh, Chief Justice of the United States not long ago, um, he was talking about the fact that the Supreme Court was for quite a long time housed in the Senate building. Capitol Hill. And I was about to say, blimey, that was odd. Uh, and I checked myself, because, I mean, our system, at least they had a separate room, <laughs> our system is even odder, so I, th I, th I think it will be, it's a good thing. We can take another charge. Okay, other questions at this side? Uh, the person with the striped shirt on the edge. Good, ev good evening, Lord Chancellor. Um, since becoming Lord Chancellor, um, have you had to deal with legal justice issues that are beyond the British borders? And uh, have your past experience as Foreign Secretary, that, has that helped you or hindered you in dealing with these uh, legal and justice issues? Thank you. Okay, is there a question at the front, Joe? Um, hypothetically speaking, if there was a row between a member of the executive, say the Home Secretary, and a member of the judiciary, whose side would you be on? <laughs> Good question. Should we do another? Uh, should we take second. another? Uh, the, the girl in the back, five rows back. Okay, I was just wondering if you could comment on what has been called the um, sort of the erosion of civil liberties that has gone on in the UK right now. Things like detentions that go on for very long periods of time and how this has affected arguably in particular Islamic citizens of the UK and perhaps what your involvement in that might have been or what you think it could be in the future okay. to prevent this? Um, 
Thanks. Well, let me just deal with those in turn. Um, gentleman asked the interesting question about um, has my experience as Foreign Secretary um, helped in dealing with criminal justice matters beyond the borders? First of all, yes, I have to deal with quite a number beyond the borders because um, Brits travel. We've always, we've always been um, travellers. Uh, but there, there are, for example, two million Brits living in Europe. I think there are five million British citizens living abroad. And, and we also uh, are now a very multiracial, uh, multicultural, multinational country. I think a, a quarter of, of, of people living in London were not born in the United Kingdom. Um, so we um, are extra extraordinarily uh, um, heterogeneous uh, society. And so, and so <coughs> many, many uh, situations I'm, I'm, avoid, I'm, I'm, I'm involved with criminal justice systems abroad. I mean, uh, to take a, a very specific case which has been in the newspapers, I can talk about it to this extent, the case of a young man called Michael Shields who was convicted in Bulgarian courts uh, of uh, what amounts to grievous bodily harm, um, was transferred here under a, prison, a standard prisoner transfer agreement the Convention of the Council of Europe, um, who then sought my agreement to reopen his case in terms of the conviction in a um, and I refused that, and that he then judicially reviewed me, and the, and the court said uh, that I needed to look at it, with a view, with a, to look at the possibility of whether uh, I could grant him a pardon. So there's an example. Or today I, I had a long meeting with Commissioner Burrow, uh, who's the, the Commissioner and Vice President of the European Commission, with responsibility for justice and home affairs, um, about a range of issues, but includes proposals for from the European Commission for uh, there to be a, a common instrument on uh, succession uh, and wills. So if, which, which law should apply, which law of which member state uh, should apply uh, in, in respect, say, of a Brit who holds property in France and also in the Netherlands? At the moment, uh, if it's real property, it's the, the law uh, where, which of, 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 of the place, which, which should we be able to choose uh, uh, which proper law would apply? Um, what do we do about the fact that uh, virtually every other jurisdiction in Europe uh, has provision for what's called clawback, so that gifts made into vivas uh, can be clawed back as, as, as part of the entitlement of family members, which is a prior claim on an estate in most jurisdictions in, in Europe, uh, whereas uh, that kind of provision is unknown uh, within the England England Welsh jurisdiction. So, and has it helped, been helpful to be for, have been foreign secretary? Yeah, hugely helpful, um, because it gives you an part from else, it gives you an understanding about the, the rhythm and the difference in, in negotiating with uh, those representing foreign nations or foreign institutions. And it's, I mean, at one level, all all negotiations are the same, but they're also all different. And if you want my tip on negotiations. Don't think about what you want out of a negotiation ever. Work out before you go into a negotiation what the other side wants out of it. Uh, and then, you, then you, you're likely to get uh, to an agreement. Um, if there was a very good question uh, about if there was a row between um, a, a minister and a member of the judiciary, uh, on whose side would I be? The judiciary. Uh, and uh, I'm quite clear about that. I think it's wrong for ministers to criticise members of the judiciary. 
and I've explained to my colleagues that I think it's a bad idea uh, and whose side I'd be on and happily no ministers have criticised the judiciary but that's different from saying you make, I mean, the Home Secretary said the other day she regretted a decision that had gone against her I mean that's not criticising the judiciary it's just you give, you, if you're a party in a court you're entitled to say uh, the court's got it you, know, you think you, you're sad that the court came to a view against you and in favour of the other side I mean that's natural but gratuitous criticism of the judiciary calling their motives and so on is unacceptable and it actually hasn't happened since Mr Brown became Prime Minister okay <laughs> well it hasn't right? uh, I mean if you think about it it hasn't uh, okay and there's a reason because not only did I make it clear but he made it clear too uh, so erosion of civil liberties a very important question from uh, somebody up there who was it who asked it yeah, um, and I let me say that, that I, I, my own constituency has a very large uh, population of uh, people of Asian heritage, almost all of whom, 30,000 to third, are of uh, Muslim uh, of, uh, of the Muslim faith. Um, I, I've been writing a bit about this. I was writing earlier about about. about about this. I mean, there are two aspects to this. One is the specific decisions we've made in respect of, of uh, counterterrorism. The other is, is the wider charge that the introduction of CCTV, DNA, and so on is all part of a kind of big, bro big brother state uh, which has taken away our liberties. On the discrete issue, um, we, all countries have had to wrestle uh, with um, how to protect its citizens against terrorism, terrorism in the wake of 9-11. Of, of I mean, we did before that, but it's become a much more acute issue. Um, we've, we've had the debate about whether detention could be up to 28 days, up to 42 days, and, and um, Parliament decided and chose that Parliament works that it, the maximum was going to be 28 days, uh, full stop. Um, it's not in... There's arguments about what happens in other countries, but... but if you're going to look at another judicial system, you've got to look in the round. They may not have a 28-day detention system in France, for example, uh, but it's, surprise, surprise, some uh, witnesses uh, can be kept in detention for up to a year, and they are. And if you talk to French judges involved in this, they'd rather have their, from the point of view of law enforcement, not freedom, they'd rather have their system. And you talk to lawyers here, they would rather have our system. So it's, it's not the, the system that is parodied, and on the 28-day the, the uh, detention, the High Court judge has to agree it, and, and it's only uh, in, in very rare cases that it is agreed. Um, on, the, on the wider, uh, and on the issue of control orders, well, there's a, there's a case before, I think, the House of Lords at the moment on control orders, but there's a problem. There's a problem for, for governments, because on the one hand, of course, you've got a duty to ensure people's liberties and never to, to stoop to the standards of the terrorist. On the other hand, you have also got to make sure within that framework to pe keep people safe. Um, and th the, the reason why we've had to go for control orders is because there are people against whom there is very clear evidence, but it's on the whole secret evidence, and that poses its own problem, um, but who, who would, not in normal circumstances, be deported. We're talking about foreign nationals. We can't deport them because of problems in their own jurisdiction. We're trying to overcome those. What do we do about them? And the public would not thank us if we simply left them at large. That, that's that's the difficulty that we face. On the on the on the wider issue, um, in my own constituency, 
uh, last week, uh, there was a headline in the newspaper that says crime has fallen and in the town centre. town centre is now safer than it's ever been. Um, and it gave the figures. And the figures for shoplifting, three-month period over Christmas compared with last year, number of shoplifting incidents has gone down from 90 to 65. The number of serious assaults, serious assaults, down from 17 to 4. The number of car thefts down from 15 to 4. The number of uh, incidents of criminal damage down from 17 to 1. So it's been a remarkable improvement. Part of that is to do with better, more effective policing, old-fashioned policing, hands-on policing, better cooperation. Part of it has been to do with better use of closed-circuit television. Now, I've never had anybody in my constituency, in the real world, come to me and say uh, that closed-circuit television is leading to a big brother state. What they've come to me and say, well, we get more closed-circuit television because it makes them feel safer. All right? Let me take DNA. I was the minister, unrepentant, actually with conservative agreement, who changed the law so that DNA samples could be reta retained even if <coughs> somebody against who'd had their sample taken, was later acquitted. Why? I'll tell you why. Because there was a law lords case, where the, and the law lords did not like doing this, but they did on a, on a construction of a statute, where, and it's worth hearing this out, there was a guy who committed a burglary, and his DNA sample was taken at, at the point of charge. There was then a rape. He was picked picked out through his DNA sample from the DNA database as the prime suspect in the rape. Indeed, there was incontrovertible. Because of the DNA, he'd done it. He was then duly convicted of the rape. He had no choice. I think he may have pleaded to it. Subsequently, uh, he, he was then acquitted of the burglary charge. And he then said that his DNA sample, because he was innocent, claimed, or at least not guilty, of the burglary, should never have been retained, and he had been retained unlawfully. And therefore, the evidence on which he was convicted of the rape uh, was bad evidence. So he had to be released. Now, I thought that was preposterous. And here was somebody who was unquestionably guilty of this offence. There was no issue was taken, let me say, in the House of Lords or on the Appeal Court about whether or not he was guilty of the rape. The issue was, should, on a technicality, have been allowed out of the rape. And I don't, I, I mean, on the balance of public interest, I mean, let me just ask you, does anybody here think that it would have been a good, a good idea to let this rapist just walk? I mean, you may, you may feel that, that it's, it's a price we pay for liberty, but if you do, put your hand up. What, one, okay, fair enough. One, two, three, four, five, okay. Put your hand up at six. Well, no, it's the same issue. See, I mean, this, this is the issue. It's exactly the... No, it's not two different issues. This is the issue embedded in one. Because it was either that... What? Well, no, but let's say, let's say he didn't plead guilty. And I can't remember whether he pleaded guilty, but he plainly was guilty, and that issue was not taken further up. OK? If, so the question, the question is, do you let a rapist go free? Or do you... Do you which is and, and, and abandon withholding people's DNA samples. That's the, that's at the heart of the issue. Now, generally, the public have taken the view, who thinks it wasn't... I mean, what we did was reverse the House of Lords judgment, which the House of Lords, by the way, wanted us to do. Who, agree, who agrees with us having reversed the House of Lords judgment? Just be interested to see how it comes out. None of you are willing to vote either way, really, on these things. A lot uh, of abstentions. A lot of abstentions. Should we then all ask? Sorry? Should we all have 
Well, I mean, there's an issue there. I personally, I don't mind. If we, I'd be perfectly happy to hand my DNA sample. And that twice I've been fingerprinted as a suspect in a crime. Uh, uh, once for... Uh, oh, I'll tell you what they were. <laughs> once at school when uh, somebody stole 30 pounds, and I, along with other people in my dormitory, obvious suspects, uh, we were all fingerprinted. Um, I wasn't interested in getting back. Well, apparently we were. The second was when a cabinet paper uh, uh, was leaked, uh, and I was a prime suspect. So I, I was fingerprinted uh, uh, and also in interviewed at some length by a commander of the Metropolitan Police. I had a sergeant who looked like uh, odd job from Goldfinger, uh, and I think his, his post this was in the they are Life on Mars days of the 1970s. Post his job was similar. Uh, one to odd jobs. But anyway, I, d I, I don't mind if people have my uh, fingerprints or DNA, but that's a separate issue. But, the, but we haven't got there yet, and they take a big debate to get there. Some judges, people who've got impeccable credentials in terms of human rights, like Stephen Sedley, think that it's not a bad idea to have a universal database. And there may be a better way of doing it um, than. You've got, and you, look, I, I agree. I mean, and there was a mark. But. Um, Marpa judgment. If you read the Marpa judgment, I don't disagree with the Marpa judgment, and I think I, I think it's perfectly possible. Which wasn't saying that holding a DNA database after someone had been acquitted is wrong. Which saying they just need to be more proportionate controls on it. And I read it. I read that judgment. I don't disagree with it at all. I think you know what. Anyway, the government's got to find a way through it. But I but I also completely refute the idea, wholly refute the idea uh, that. This is a government which has eroded liberty. It isn't. It, 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 we're quite the reverse. Uh, we are the government which introduced the Race Relations Amendment Act, which those who are criticising us always forget about, uh, which has made it provided real rights for people who are black or Asian. We introduced the Freedom of Information Act, and above all, we introduced the Human Rights Act. And the Conservative Party are committed, wouldn't have done the Race Relations Act, certainly wouldn't have done the Freedom of Information Act because they didn't, and are committed to repealing the Human Rights Act. Uh, and it's a human. No. We don't. No plans to repeal the Freedom of Information Act. Thank you. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry, I, I mean, I'm not responsible for what's written in the Times. We're going to have to go in a minute, because this is warmed up. Do you, do, you, do you want a question there? Or you well, we'll take, just take one more. Okay, for this lady. Safeguarding of the judiciary with uh, your decision to use your veto power to circumvent a high court approved uh, Freedom of Information Act request for cabinet minutes from the uh, lead up to the Iraq war. Okay. Well, it was a bit, and I've also, I know the person who asked me here, but just a, a, a more detail, about, a bit more about what my, my Asian constituents. Um, th that, the veto, which is, that, which is, is part of the, the, the legal structure of the Freedom of Information Act. And, and when we, it was going through, it was greatly strengthened by Parliament. But the, the quid pro quo to a lot of strengthening. We now have a much stronger Freedom of Information Act than virtually any other country in the world. Right? much, much stronger, was that uh, in certain circumstances, very limited circumstances, there would be a veto power given under what, what is Section 53. So that's part of the law of the land. So that's how I reconcile it. It's not some prerogative veto which I that was able to bring out the Lord Chancellor's bag. 
Okay, it's part of the part of that act and the balance in the act. Can I just say, last point about my constituents in in Blackburn? You'd have to ask them, but the my 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 view, there's understandable anxiety amongst um, that those of the Muslim faith that they are being targeted uh, as potential suspects, and it's a continuing issue, for example, in airports and so on, and one I one I one I take up, but. Um, they also, there's also a, a, an appreciation um, that the, they, they want effective law enforcement, including counter-terrorist laws, because they're as, as just as likely to be the victim as anybody else. I mean, the terrorist uh, outrages are, uh, are, are completely indiscriminate. And I think proportionately more Muslims have died in the terrorist outrages that have taken place both in this country and abroad. Uh, uh, than in the, their proportion of the population. And on the general issue of law enforcement, if you come to one of my residence meetings as I held the other day, uh, last, uh, last Friday, PAC meeting, 85 residents, half white, half Asian. The police chief said, if anybody's got any complaints about the way we handle the counter-terrorist arrest, please come forward, I'm happy to explain it. Not one question, not one question from anybody there, black or, or white or Asian. Uh, and all the questions were about keeping the streets safe, normal things. People want to get on with their lives. Just because they're Asian or Muslim doesn't mean they're not interested in the same things anybody else. They are. And I also say my very last point. You ask people of Muslim faith where they could better practice their religion and have more people showing respect for their religion. It'd be hard to pay, but <coughs> as they tell me, to find a better country than, this, than the United Kingdom. Uh, nowhere else in Europe, I'm, I'm told and actually few countries in the Middle East. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, we, we need to draw things to a close. If I can just ask you to remain seated for a couple of minutes, just to give uh, Jack Straw time to leave. Um, but thank you, very much once, uh, thank you very much once again for um, a fascinating talk where we've seen, I think, in his own words, a little bit of a street politician and the new breed of Lord Chancellor. So thank you very much. Thank you.